about you, but I was sitting here reminiscing about last Easter. Last Easter didn't have all those happy cherub-like faces singing. It had nobody in the room except the team, a ladder with a camera on it. Remember those days? Yeah. But guess what? God has seen us through. Amen? And God will always see us through. That's just the way he is. You know, so as we get started here, we are going to make our way to surprise the resurrection chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, where this morning's reflection on being raised from the dead and what that means for Christ and those who follow after him. Because when we believe in him, guess what? We're joined to him, our spirit to his. And where he goes, we go too. And that's the best deal of all. So let's pray, Father God, as we consider what Christ meant when he said, whoever believes in me, I will raise him up on the last day. We want to see what that looks like. We want to know more. Thankfully, your word reveals it to us. Open our hearts to the truth, the most important truth the universe will ever know, how to live forever and escape the judgment of God. In Jesus' name, amen. I was having a conversation recently with a bunch of mixed uh, people, and uh, the subject of holidays came up, and the question got asked, uh, what's your favorite holiday? And everybody was talking, and uh, most of them said uh, their favorite holiday was Christmas. No surprise there. And then I said, I love Christmas too, uh, but for me, I think I'm going to go with Easter. And I will not forget the face across from me, all scrunched up, bewildered by my response, kind of saying, Easter, I don't, I don't get that. Like, well, what's up with that? Well, I'm happy that he came into the world and we celebrate Christmas, he came into the world. But really, I'm even happier that he accomplished what he came to do, which is Easter. I'm more happy about that, amen? amen. Think about it. He came to taste death for us all, to destroy the work of the devil, to quote the Bible, uh, to remove our sins by paying for them in full, by dying in our place, to reconcile us back to the God from whom we were estranged because of our sins, to call us back in right relationship to enjoy him, walk in the light of his truth and his love forever. And then he raises us up supernaturally, comes inside, raises us to new life, a life that can never die. So yeah, I'm going to have to go with Easter. <laughs> the empty tomb says, all good. That's what it says to those who believe in the one God has sent. And so it does make sense to me that if someone doesn't fully understand the terrible predicament that sin has caused me and you, the whole human race, what dire straits we were all in, 
uh, they also can't fully appreciate the joy of Jesus' death and resurrection on our behalf because they're not aware of the problem. I mean, why rejoice in a victory when you're not aware there was a problem? And so if I show you a couple pictures of people rejoicing at a scene here, as we look at this picture here, this guy's pretty happy because he's been rescued. And the next picture is another joyful picture. A lot of happy people. In fact, most of the world was rejoicing like this. But if you didn't know the story that actually 33 miners in 2010 down in a copper gold mine in Chile, right? You remember that? There was a collapse. And on day 17, as they were boring holes of exploration to see if anybody was alive, on the drill bit was taped a note. There's 33 of us down here. We're trapped in the shelter. Up came the drill bit, and they read that, and they realized they had to do something. And so 69 days later, they lowered this thing into a hole, and each man had to strap himself in that cylinder and be raised up from the belly of the earth in darkness up to the surface where there's light and life and truly uh, a little bit of a resurrection indeed. And so then you ask them why they're so happy, they will say, oh, if you only knew what it was like before, right? And so that's the understanding here that, uh, you know, the Lord, what he did, he didn't just save us from 69 days of darkness. Jesus, the words of Jesus is that there's a place called outer darkness reserved for people who have sinned against God, who have broken his laws and counted his holiness as an unholy thing. He said, there's this place of outer darkness, and once you're there, there's no escape. And it goes on for more than 69 days. And so, yeah, I'm going to go with Easter as my favorite holiday when you take it all in. And so, yeah. Now, if you were to ask Jesus, maybe, what's your bottom line? He, he brought a gospel. It's called the gospel of Jesus. Gospel means good news. And uh, here's his bottom line. I have it for you, and it's our launching pad uh, for heading to 1 Corinthians 15. But in John 6, he says, for my Father's will. Now, God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, three in one. One God, three persons. They're all God as one. God the Father's will is that everyone who looks to God the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life. And here's the promise. Here's the bottom line for Jesus. If you believe in me, I will raise you up on the last day. Now, the question might be, well, what does that look like? What do you mean the last day, you know? And so the New Testament fills in all the gaps and answers all the questions about that, as much information as we can humanly take in in our limited capacity. But uh, so much so, there's an entire uh, chapter on 
the resurrection, what it means, what kind of bodies we'll have, what we'll be doing in that resurrected life, the quality of that life, the description of the place. Jesus called it paradise. There are other names for heaven, the New Jerusalem, but one of them is paradise. Sounds like a nice place after the resurrection, right? And there's even a timetable and so sweet details provided for us about what Jesus meant when he said, I will raise them up on the last day. And so um, the Corinthians, they lived in a Greek culture and they're in what would become Greece. It was Macedonia at the time. And the Greeks were really down and thought it was ridiculous that there would be a bodily resurrection. And so this creeped into the Corinthian church. And so Paul said, I can't believe you're buying that. I cannot believe it. So, so God, Romans 8, 28, he works all things together for good. Use the false teaching to bring about 1 Corinthians 15. We might not have that whole chapter if there wasn't heresy saying there's no such thing as the resurrection. So he, Paul just says, are you kidding me? What's the point of life if there's the resurrection? And Paul says, and I quote, let's eat and drink and be merry for tomorrow we die. In other words, let's party. Because what's the point if there's nothing after death? And so he said that we should be pitied of all people if there's no resurrection. And he goes on to give the most detailed, the longest chapter in the Bible about anything about life after death called the resurrection. And he's going to wrap up with a conclusion there. One last paragraph that I think it was excellent for us uh, for it's only uh, seven or eight verses for us to reflect on on resurrection sunday about what jesus meant i will raise you up on the last day on here we are at what we call resurrection sunday and so uh it's his closing argument here starting at verse 50 it's a happy conclusion uh probably the most sublime beautiful uh, just spectacular verses in the entire universe are right here what you're going to read. And so let's dive into Paul's closing argument and his outburst of joy, cause for hope to remain steadfast serving the Lord and very applicable to us in troubling times to keep our mind focused on what's coming. You see. All right, so verse 50. We're reading from the New Living Translation because on Easter we've got a lot of new people checking church out. New Living Translation is very accurate and the simplest to understand. And so for that reason, Paul wraps up his argument about the resurrection, saying this this is what I'm saying, dear brothers and sisters, is that our physical bodies can inherit the kingdom of God. These dying bodies cannot inherit what will last forever. He goes on. But let me reveal to you a wonderful mystery. It's about resurrection day is coming. He says, we're not all going to die, but we will be transformed. It will happen in a moment, in the blink of an eye, when the last trumpet is blown. Perhaps what Jesus means on the last day. Day, I raise him up. Now, 
when that trumpet sounds, those who have died, who are already with the Lord, Christians, will be raised, their bodies, that is, because they're with the Lord, present. That's resurrection day when he appears. They get their bodies, and they'll live forever in those glorified bodies. And we who happen to be alive at the moment that trumpet goes off will be changed. Translated is the word transformed. We don't have to be raised from the dead because we're alive. Well, we get our resurrected body, boom, in a second, in a twinkling of an eye. For our dying bodies must be transformed into bodies that will never die. Our mortal bodies, flesh and blood, must be transformed into immortal bodies. See, it goes on. Then when our dying bodies have been transformed into bodies that will never die, this scripture will be fulfilled. Then he goes to Isaiah. And here's a line from Isaiah. Death will be swallowed up in victory. And then he's kind of taunting death. He's kind of teasing death. And he goes, oh, yeah, death, where's your big victory? Oh, death, where's your big sting? Oh, we're so afraid. Oh, sorry. Okay. Maybe I'm adding a little bit. Uh, but I do that. Uh, verse 56. Now, here's the problem. For sin, well, that was against us, is the sting that results in death. That's a big problem. And the law, God's command, gives sin its power. <laughs> Thou shalt not, and because of sin you did, now you're in trouble and death and all of that. But... Thank God he gives us the victory over sin, over death, through our Lord Jesus Christ. And that is going to be our verses for reflection this morning. We're going to walk through them as we always do, explain and apply. That's what we do here. We teach the word of God. And it uh, unfolds quite naturally into, number one, the problems laid out in that very first verse and wrap-up statement. He says, uh, you know, the problem is laid out. We're not properly equipped for eternal life. There has to be a change. If you're going to get to heaven, something has to happen while you're living and breathing in this life, supernatural, by God, to equip you to get in, or you're not going. Number one. Number two, a mystery revealed that there's this resurrection day, only God knows when, no man knows the day or the hour, when he's just going to call every Christian on the planet and who's ever lived together to meet him. That is uh, the mystery revealed. And then thirdly, a reason to rejoice, because one day death and sin and corruption and pain and crying and mourning and all of this will be in the rearview mirror never to be seen again. And that day is coming. It has already started, but not yet. The theologians call it the already, but not yet tension that we live in. But Paul says, hey, one day it's all going to be rearview mirror. And wow, we look forward to that. And, and, and you know what? When God says, I swear by myself it will happen, then you can trust it's going to happen because he's taking an oath. And it says in the Bible, I would swear by something higher, but, you know, it's me. So I, so I just swear by myself because there's nobody higher. I don't need to put my hand on anything. I'm just God. So I said, I swear this is going to happen. And it will. Right. So let's go to the problem where he says in summation, he goes, look, you can't get to heaven unless you've undergone a change. You know, it's the most important truth of all. Really? So 
He says, to paraphrase, and wrapping up, my dear friends, here's the bottom line. You won't be going to heaven unless you've been changed. Your body now and the flesh and blood is, eh, you know, and your spirit that's been separated from God because of sin, you're trapped. You just can't. You're not equipped to go. And so let's talk about that because it's the most um, uh, dangerous and common misconception out there. Probably most people, most Americans for sure, Westerners for sure, and maybe people in the whole world. When someone has passed, as we like to say, heaven or the better place, I know they're in a better place, is always just an automatic. Nobody questions anything. Everybody just says they're in the better place. And sometimes you hear at memorial services, uh, they're enjoying their favorite activity there, or they're watching out from up above. And that's what everybody has come to believe. Now, I sure do uh, understand the sentiment there. And it's sweet and uh, well-intentioned, right? Uh, but it's not necessarily biblical. So if you open the Bible, what does the Bible say? Well, this is where Jesus' words to Nicodemus is very uh, helpful. He says, listen, if you're born a natural way, flesh and blood, and you live a natural life with no supernatural intervention, no changing, no equipping uh, by God, uh, you will die in your sins. You need God to do something, and that's called the gospel. And so Nicodemus, who, and we're in John chapter 3 now, this famous place where we get the born-again phrase from. Nicodemus is a Pharisee. Pharisee means separated. And what they did, they were religious guys who studied the Bible. They were separated to find out what God required and then live it out. They were experts in doing what God expects so we can get to heaven, or so they thought. So this guy comes to Jesus by night because, you know, the rest of his friends hated Jesus and wanted to kill him. But here, he's interested because he says, hey, listen, Rabbi, we, some of us, know that you must come from God. God God is with you because who else can walk on water and raise up dead people? And the, the stuff you're doing, it speaks loud and clear. God's with you. And Jesus interrupts him. Oh, I don't want to have this long, wasted conversation about what good thing, and I'm trying to be a good guy, and you know, uh, yeah, no, 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 no. He just shuts him down. Listen, dude, you're a sinner. You're, a, you're not a good person. Nobody's good except God. There's only one who's good. There's nothing good. You have to, you're, you're thinking, oh, well, if I'm good enough and it outweighs my bad, then I'll go to heaven. No, 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 no. Wrong subject. It's not about being good, it's about being made alive. You, you're spiritually dead, you have to come alive. God's breath has to come into you and breathe you up and give you a life. It's called being born again, Nicodemus. And if you're born again in this life, your body will die, but the generator's lit, you're good, you'll be there. And so he has to tell him about the prerequisite of God to get to heaven is that you are raised from the dead spiritually speaking, in this life by believing the gospel. It, because we're all bad, we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God, so nobody can be good enough. If, if we could, Christ died in vain, right? So the question's not about being good, but being, being made alive. You remember when we died. We died to God. We were alive in God, but, you know, Adam, Eve, 
If you're a son of Adam or a daughter of Eve, here's what happened to you in the garden. Because you were with them, you were in them. When it all went down, you were there. You were inside them, in their loins, as it were. God said, listen, all's good, but express your free will by loving me, by avoiding that tree. Don't go near it, don't eat it. If you do, boom, you'll die. You'll disconnect from the author of life. And so you know the story. The tempter comes into Eve. Eve is tempted. She eats. She gives it to Adam. He eats. They die. Do they fall over and die? No. They were body, soul, and spirit. And their spirit was connected to God's spirit. That gave them life. That's why they live forever. They're connected to God. But when they sinned, the death he was talking about is the spirit died. Disconnected. Now, they gave birth to kids who were also disconnected from God, spiritually stillborn, if you will. They came into the world. Proof, the first person without a belly button, with a belly button. The first person with a belly button is a murderer. The firstborn with a belly button is a murderer who slaughters his brother because he's jealous of it. That's what happens when you disconnect from the source of life. You give birth to others who are disconnected from life, who transgress in the same way that the parents did. And so we get down to us. Now, here's what Jesus did. He became one of us to come in to do spiritual CPR. And so what he said is, I've got the pilot light rekindled to anyone who believes I will put my spirit in them. Oh, so some scholars say that people who don't know the Lord have a body and a soul, but they don't have the spirit because the spirit died. And so the spirit that lives forever is available through Christ, and and Christ will come as creator the second time. The first time he was in the garden and he breathed into Adam's nostrils the breath of life, and that died when they disconnected and joined arms, linked arms with the evil one. Christ comes and goes round two. Anybody want to have life again? Anybody want reconnection? Anybody want to be restored? Then believe in me. And then in John chapter 20, the risen Lord walks into a room of disciples and he says, receive the Holy Spirit. And he breathes. He breathes on them. John chapter 20. It's just a picture. He was the creator before, and he's the creator now. He's the recreator. And he says, for those who believe, if you want a way out, I'm doing a rescue thing. It's called the age of grace. I've made a way to come to life, and you will not be going to heaven without that change. He said, flesh and blood, Flesh gives birth to flesh. Spirit gives birth to spirit. That's in John chapter 3 and verse 6. And so here's what happens. So now you're equipped. So when the spirit comes in and raises you to that life that can never die, the body dies, boom, the generator kicks on, and you're fine, you're good, you live. You know, you're like, what was that about? You wake up in heaven and it's like the Lord says, well, you died. And you're like, whoa, that was easy, you know, because it is easy. Generally speaking, you close your eyes and wake up to new life. Now, 
when you're there. You're in a spiritual body. To be absent with the Lord is to be present. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. You're in a spiritual body. 1 Corinthians 15 says this. If we have a natural body, we have a spiritual body. And that was proven to us by Jesus rising from the dead. That was a spiritual body. When he walked in that room, he didn't use the door or the windows. So it's a spiritual body. However, he said, touch, Thomas, touch. Stop being such a doubter, man. You're such a doubting Thomas. Touch here. Give me a piece of fish. You guys are scared out of your mind. Let me show you. And he takes a piece of fish, puts it in his mouth, swallows it, goes, see? I'm not a spirit. I'm not a ghost. That's exactly what he did. That's the body you enter heaven with. But he's not done. He wants you to have the body in the grave or the body in the urn or the body at sea. He will resurrect that on the rapture day, on resurrection day. He will resurrect every cell of everybody's body and perfect it into beauty and glory, perfection. You will have the most energy. You will be the most beautiful. You will be the perfectly designed with the body as glorious, and I'm quoting the Bible as his body is glorious. You will share the same kind of body as the Son of God, as I've been saying. And so they're waiting. They're waiting for the rapture. They're in perfectly good spiritual bodies, but they're not completed. They're waiting for the day that we're completed because we happen to be alive. Boom, the trumpet sounds. And well, here it is. Let's go on. It's called the mystery. Next verses. Thank you. But let me reveal to you this wonderful mystery. And he goes on. Now, about the Lord's coming. He's talking about the Lord's appearing. All right? Now, as most of you know, Christians know, there are two distinct appearings. There's no way you can reconcile both of them. There's two comings. One is secret as a thief in the night. One, he comes halfway down to heaven and we go up to see him. One, he comes all the way down and he destroys everybody, right? So how do we do it? One's a surprise. And one, the second coming that we're all thinking of when like the blaze of fire and all of that, the second coming is no surprise. In Daniel, in Revelation, it says, when the Antichrist goes into the temple, which will be on top of the dome there, the, 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 the top of the temple there, the temple mount, when he proclaims to be God and tells the whole world to worship him, the Bible says, count 1,260 days, boom, you'll see the Lord. There's no surprise. And yet we have verses that say, hey, watch out, you don't know the day or the hour. He's talking about the mystery. I'm going to reveal this mystery to you. It's called the rapture of the church. Now, uh, two things happen. Two things happen at the rapture that are told over and over and in this verse. One, those who are with the Lord who have died, who are in their spiritual bodies, they get their body. In the split second after they get their body and they're with the Lord, then we who are alive in the moment, in a twinkling of an eye, in a flash, as other scriptures say, we are changed. You're at Starbucks. You're drinking your coffee. You're talking to a friend, maybe, hopefully, about the Lord. And you're like, dude, I hope you really get saved because 
boom, then you disappear. <laughs> it would be the best sermon illustration ever. <laughs> right? But he's saying there is a time, and, and, and let me show you the parallel text to the appearing called the rapture. First Thessalonians chapter 4. Let me show it to you. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven. Well, at the second coming, he comes down, and it's Armageddon, and he comes all the way down to the Mount of Olives, and he puts them all uh, to flight. He annihilates them. It's not much of a battle, Armageddon. It's one word out of his mouth. And maybe the word is like, seriously? <laughs> Boom. <laughs> It says they fight against the Lord. They see him, the Antichrist and the armies gathered to, to, to destroy Israel, see him, and they fire on him. That's the dumbest thing in the world. You're going to shoot God. Oh, watch out, God. Boom, boom. Not going to happen. So the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, the trumpet call of God, the dead in Christ. Get their bodies. Boom. After that, we who are alive in a split second, we get caught up. Now, the way we call it the rapture is that word caught up. In the Greek, it's harpazo, right? And it means to be violently seized and snatched away. Yikes. That's okay. If the, the Lord wants to violently seize me on that day, that's fine, right? Now, where do you get the word rapture? And I love people, rapture's not even in the Bible. Mm, yeah, it is. Sorry. The rapture comes from caught up, and it's when the New Testament went to Latin. The Latin phrase for caught up is rapturo. So that got anglicized into English, rapture, and it stuck around 1800. It just stuck. And we've always called it the, well, you could call it the catching up. You could call it the snatch away. You could call it whatever you want, but that's what it is, and the rapture is in the Bible. And so uh, to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. We go up at the second coming. He appears with the church, and we come down, you see. So this is the mystery revealed. He says it's going to happen in a twinkle. The word for that is the, the buzzing of a gnat, the fluttering of a wing, you see, it just kind of happened. And then, I'm sorry, you know, the age of grace is over. You can still get saved, but you're going through the last seven years, which Jesus said, and which brings me to the reason why there's a catching up, is because God's plan to establish his kingdom has been kicked into the next gear. When he removes the church from harm's way, because we're not appointed to wrath, God's wrath begins on a Christ-rejecting world. There will not be one Christian on the planet in that second, that first second. There'll be many who will convert. But they'll have to go through seven years that Jesus said in Matthew 24 and verse 21, in those days there will be great tribulation, never like it before in its intensity, and never again, he says, in fact, if those days weren't shortened for the sake of the elect, of, of those who will become saved in the tribulation, he said not one human being on the planet would survive. And if you look at Revelation from chapter 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, that's the tribulation. 
21 judgments. You're looking around at a world that seems to be kind of like the noses of the plane is like heading slightly downward, right? Oh, 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 oh. we get off the plane before it gets really serious. And when the church has been removed, then the wrath of God falls and God says, why would I pour out my wrath on people who have been paid for? He took the wrath. So he says, you guys get to sit the last seven out, you know. That's really what he's saying. Now, just I want you to know this. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord, it's a two-pronged promise. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved from their sins in hell, but also from the great day of tribulation, which is seven years. And proof for that, Acts chapter 2, he preaches a sermon, the first sermon to the church on Pentecost Sunday, and he's preaching the whole sermon is on the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord, smoke and fire, blood moon, uh, the whole thing, right? The whole world on fire. And then he says, but whoever calls on the name of the Lord should be saved. Just like Jesus said, there'll be two in a field. The trumpet will sound, one goes, one stays. He goes, there'll be two in a bed, a believer and an unbeliever. One goes, one stays for the wrath. One was paid for. One wasn't. And so this is what Jesus meant when he said, by the way, when he said, I will raise you up on the last day. If you think about the rapture, caught up. He's not kidding around. When he says, I'm going to raise you up on the last day. And by the way, at the last supper, he said the same thing. Don't let your hearts be troubled. I go to prepare a place for you that where I am, you will be also and if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be where I am. That's not the second coming. That's the mystery revealed here that at any second, once the signs have been fulfilled and Matthew 24, check, 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 they're all fulfilled. The next event on God's prophetic calendar is the mystery of the rapture of the church. The trumpet is the next sound you will hear from heaven. Amen? Ah, I'm happy about it. Let's close out with uh, where Paul is just like, I just gotta say, mm, to the death and all of this thing. And so here we go. Now uh, we finish up with this. Let me kind of um, paraphrase what you're looking at. So he says, uh, okay, so friends, when these bodies are replaced with imperishable ones, the scripture in Isaiah 21, 25, rather, verse 8, will be fulfilled. Death has been defeated, swallowed up. Verse 55. Now he's mocking. So he's like, tell me, Mr. Grim Reaper, who are you going to reap next? Because he won't be able to. It's the death of the Grim Reaper that he's mocking here. He's saying, who's going to be the next victim? Tell me, then, grave, who are you going to swallow up next? Ha, huh, you can't. So that's really the, the essence of this. And we thank God because he defeated that. So we've, we've, we've got three real problems in the text that were against you that you could do nothing about. Sin is what caused death, right? And uh, you see this in verse 56. You've got sin, and you've got death, and you've got God's law. It all 
working together to be the sting, man, because uh, you, the law demands what you cannot meet, right? So God says, thou shalt not, but you've been doing it for a long time. You pick and choose the ones that you feel like you can break and justify, but the law demands that you uh, meet what you cannot, right? Sin. So the law, the law demands what we cannot meet. Sin is a stain we cannot remove. And death is an outcome we cannot avoid. So God says in his love, I'll become one of you. I'll become the God-man, and I'll defeat the trilemma that opposes you, that damns your soul, that gives you no hope. And so let's talk about God's law. Christian, listen, he didn't just die for your sins. He lived for you, too. He lived the perfect life. Everything you should have said, he said it. Everything you shouldn't have said, he didn't say. Everything you should have done, he did. Everything, every way he should have loved, you should have loved your parents. You should have loved one another. You should have loved God. He did it. He not only died for your sins, the life he lived, he lived on your behalf. So he fulfills the law. So who's suffering in my place up there has fulfilled the law. In fact, the Bible says that you in some mystical spiritual way are in him when he's doing this on the cross. So there he is and you, but you fulfilled the law hmm. in him, right? And so let's move on to sin. The Bible says the sinless one became sin. So every sin you've ever committed and the whole entire world ever, every last sin that's ever been committed laid on his shoulders so that we could be right with God and that he dies and pays fully. <laughs> Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Well, because the sins of the world, son, are on you and now I'm going to treat you the way that every sinner deserved to be treated. And that's why Jesus cries out. So sin taken care of there on the cross. And then uh, law, he's lived the law out. Sin he died for. And uh, that's the twist really. The twist is that he can't die. And so for death, did you ever notice in the King James it says, he says, it's finished, I paid for the sins. And then at the, at the last second, he says, into your hands I commit my spirit. And then it says in the King James, he gave up the ghost. It means he gave up his spirit, he yielded. It means in NIV, he dismissed his spirit because the body of Christ the man can die, but he's God too. So he can't die. So he's going to say, mm, you can die now. I give you permission because it's finished. I paid. Now I dismiss my own spirit within me. And here's what he did to death. He slipped into the abyss of death, the death that has been swallowing up mankind from the dawn of time. He slipped into the belly of death itself, now having paid for all the sins that caused death in the first place and living a righteous life that God command. He slips 
into death and detonates the button and death is destroyed. It's the death of death by God. So now he emerges now with that trilemma neutralized because we were in him. We are acceptable. We have a life that met the law because we're in him. We have a life of no sin because we're in him. And we, death is irrelevant to us because we're in the one who could never die. And so this is the good news here. And so let me close with a little story that I heard about a little boy who was deathly allergic to bees, like one sting and you're dead. They carried all kinds of emergency equipment around that little boy because it was pretty serious. One summer days out with dad in the countryside, he's in a car, all the windows are rolled down, it's warm outside, and a wasp flies in and is hovering over the kid's head, and the kid goes ballistic with fear. He panics. Dad, it's summer, he takes off his shirt. The bee is attracted, boom, stings him. What's even more moving with the quick thinking mind of a heart of a dad is that the dad was afflicted with the same allergy as the boy. In our case, our father took more than a shirt off. They stripped him so that the viper could come in and bite him and inject into our God, our representative, all the venomous poison of every sin we've ever committed on the earth. The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So the viper injects him with all that evil and all that poison, and he dies and rises again now with the blood that provides immunity to such viper bites. Let the viper bite. You will die and you have immunity because you're in the one who lived the perfect life for you, who died the perfect death on your behalf and has defeated death for you. Let's pray together. Oh, Father God, we're not worthy of a single thing except being rightly punished for the sins we commit on a daily basis. And yet, you just love us. You understand us. You understand our weakness. And you, you reverse the curse. You came to save us. Thank you for making it so easy that all we have to do is say, God, I'm a sinner. I need your help. I repent. Please save me. That, that wasn't very hard. And then the new life comes, and then changes are made. So, Father, we pray that you would drive this truth of how gracious you are and how loving and how valuable we are, that we might think of ourselves differently and uh, rise from this place to live a new life. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to The Rock's podcast. Our regular services are held on Sunday mornings at 8, 9.30, and 11.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. 
If you'd like to learn more, please visit our website at cctherock.org.